Hey, well, good morning, Coastal Church. Pastor Sean here just wanted to introduce our new sermon series. We're picking up where we left off last year in Exodus. In fact, uh, if you've been around Coastal for any length of time, we are making our way through the Pentateuch at the beginning of every new year. And so starting this week, we are picking up where we left off in Exodus. Last year, we talked about how God delivered his people from the hand of Egypt. And now this year, uh, we're going to join with the nation of Israel and we're going to see God's hands and provision as they travel across the wilderness. And we're going to end the series talking about the Ten Commandments. And of course, we will be applying all of this to God's gracious gift to us in his son, Jesus Christ, and how Jesus fulfills all the promises. Hey, also, I want to remind you, Coastal, we're in our small group season. And if you're not yet in a small group, I really hope that you'll make an eight-week commitment and join one of our small groups as we journey together through the book of Exodus. And so we love to unpack God's word in a community, in a small group. And so if you haven't yet joined a small group, get a grow book. Find a small group that fits your time. Join up. You won't regret it. It's a big part of your spiritual growth as together we journey through the book of Exodus. You know, if you've been at Coastal for any length of time, you've been here for the last couple of years, you'll know this is actually our third year in the book of Exodus where uh, we kind of take it section by section in the beginning of the year. And so here's the deal. If, you, if it's been a while and you don't remember or you're new, we're going to start with a little bit of recap. And you ever watch a show on Netflix? You know what happens right in the beginning of the show is it has that little blurb where it's like, you know, previously on Friday Night Lights or whatever. And it gives you like 60 seconds of a recap. So you've got to know what's going on as the episode starts. That's how we're starting the sermon this morning. Okay. So previously in the Pentateuch, we're actually, we're going to go even back into Genesis. So Abraham, God makes a promise to a guy named Abram that he's going to bless him and that through his family, he is going to bless the world. He's going to give them this land that he promised them, and he's going to make them into a great nation. So a lot of stuff happens with his family. His family is a little crazy, so don't feel bad if yours is too. Uh, so Abraham's family, it goes through the story of Genesis, and they end up, long story short, in Egypt. And at first, Egypt was a land of protection and salvation for them. Because remember, there's a famine. They're all going to die if they stay in Canaan, Canaan, because there's a famine but they get into Egypt. They start out as a family of 70 people and over 400 years, they multiply and multiply into this great nation, this huge nation. And so the Egyptians have a problem on their hands. They have this great nation there. And so out of fear, Pharaoh and the Egyptians enslave the people of Israel. They force them into labor and they are so harsh with them that they're even killing their children to keep the population down. And so they cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And then the Lord raises up Moses and his brother Aaron to be deliverers for the people of Israel. And so they go to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's just a little bit stubborn. Uh, you can read about that in the whole plague story. It takes 10 plagues, uh, concluding with the climactic final plague of the Passover and the death of the firstborn for Pharaoh to let the people go. And so they begin marching toward the sea. Then Pharaoh changes his mind. He's still being stubborn. And he approaches the people at the sea and God parts the sea. He brings the people through. He defeats Pharaoh and his army. And then what do they do in chapter 15? They call up the worship team. They close with a song. They worship. Everything's great. They're on the other side of the river. God has saved them. That's where we left off in the story. And you might be thinking, Nate, you just did that in two minutes. Why did that take us three years? Well, um, because there was a lot more detail than that. We missed just a few things. But here's the deal. Where are we now in the story? This people has just gone from a group of slaves now to a freed nation. They've made it through the sea. They're on the other side. Now what? 
Now what? They know that God is taking them to this land that God had promised to Abraham 400 plus years earlier. But how are they going to get there? Where is it? What are they doing? That's where we are now. You see, God had brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness, into the desert. And what we are going to do as we start this journey along with Israel is follow them to the promised land and see what God is teaching them through this process. And I want you to see how relevant this is for our lives today, because you and I might not be literally wandering around in the desert, but we all go through wilderness seasons in our lives. We all face trials. We all face difficulties in our lives. And the question is, in those moments, how are we going to respond? As we go through the Pentateuch, Israel is going to make you want to pull your hair out. You're going to be like, what are you doing? And it's so infuriating sometimes and so frustrating. We're like, you guys, God has provided for you time and time again. Why don't you get it? Why do you keep whining? Why do you keep disobeying? And when we're tempted to say that, please find a mirror as soon as possible. Because they are a picture of us that we do the same thing. We see God provide time and time again. We've seen God's deliverance time and time again. And yet we're not grateful. Yet we complain. Yet we're quick to doubt. Yet we're quick to worry. What I hope we will learn this morning is this. Here's the main point. We should respond to trials with faith in God's provision instead of complaining. With that in mind, let's start this story together. Let's start with just the first five verses of Exodus 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them to see whether they may walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Let's open with a word of prayer. O Lord, I pray even now that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds to receive what you would teach us through your holy, inspired, and inerrant word this morning. Lord, by the power of your spirit, use this word to make us more like Jesus. Lord, how much we need this word. Lord, how much I need this word. How quick I am to complain. How quick I am to worry instead of trust you, instead of be grateful for how much you've done for me. Oh, Lord, this word is so convicting to me, and I pray that you would use it in the same way with my brothers and sisters in this room challenge us, convict us, make us more like Christ this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse one, where are they? They set out from Elam. Let's back up. 1527, what does it say about Elam? Look back, one verse in your Bible. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? Like they went to water country or something. Well, they're in the middle of the desert. They got all this water around them. They're in this oasis and things are going pretty well. You could even think of that as like a season of refreshment for them, but they couldn't stay there. They had to move on because God had called them to the promised land. It says, 
They were there between there and Sinai, which is where they're going to receive the law, on the 15th day of the second month after they left Egypt. I take this to mean they'd been gone from Egypt for a month. Because remember, Passover happened on the evening of the 14th day of the first month. So I take this to mean they've only been gone a month from Egypt. And what happens? Because remember that they get out of Egypt, chapter 15, they're singing the worship song, they're celebrating, everything's great. Verse 2, the whole congregation of the people of Israel, remember, this is like 2 million people, a lot of people, grumbled. They grumbled. You could translate that. They complained. They murmured. They whined. They griped. You know, as we go throughout the Pentateuch, throughout Exodus, throughout Numbers, all of that, you're going to see this pattern over and over and over again. Grumbling was Israel's besetting sin. It was the one sin that they kept coming back to over and over again. They grumbled. They complained. You know, I had a youth pastor growing up who once told me whenever we'd start complaining in our youth group, he would say, and no, actually it wasn't Brian. And Scott just looked at Brian. Uh, Because he he was actually back in the day, fun fact. Uh, But a different youth pastor I had grown up used to say, you know, God killed an entire generation of Israelites in the wilderness by making them wander for 40 years because they wouldn't stop complaining. That's a nice little threat, by the way, parents. You want to use that one with your kids. But they're complaining. And what are they complaining about? Verse 3, it says they complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They're complaining against the leaders that God had called to lead them and deliver them. And what are they saying in their complaining? Verse three, would that we had died. That's grateful. You are slaves. God just rescued you through the plagues, through the miraculous deliverance. And they're saying, we wish we were dead. And what do they say about their experience in Egypt? When we sat by the meat pots, that didn't even sound great, by the way. Uh, We sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Like, hold on a minute. Does that sound like anything that we read earlier in Exodus about their experience in Egypt? I mean, they uh, remember the bricks? They had to go and make more bricks and they wouldn't give them straw for it. They're acting like they're at Golden Corral or something. Like we're sitting by these meat pots to the full. We have all this bread. We have everything we want. This probably wasn't true, but this is what it suggests to me. The good old days probably weren't that good. Anybody? The good old days probably weren't that good. Our nostalgia mixed with our discontentment tends to magnify the past so that we make more of it than what it was. And our discontentment makes the present seem a lot worse than it really is. This is the way Matthew Henry put it. Discontent magnifies what is past and vilifies what is present without regard to truth or reason. And it gets ugly because they're accusing Moses and Aaron of genocide. They said, you have brought us here to kill us as if they had nothing better to do. You have brought us here to kill us. Now, how does God respond to this ridiculous, sinful, ungrateful complaining? Verse four, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain fire and brimstone on this people. No, I am about to rain bread, bread from heaven. It's not amazing. He responds to their ungratitude and their complaining with grace. With here is bread, I'm giving you what you need. I'm giving you the very thing that you asked for. And yet this is a test of their faith. God says, this is to see whether they will walk in my law or not. It's interesting. In a couple of chapters, we're going to see this when we get to the Ten Commandments. God is going to give them his law, the Mosaic law, the law of the old covenant. Yet even here, before we get there, 
He's saying, I want to see if you guys know how to follow instructions. I want to begin to prepare you even now to test you because you see the purpose of the manna was to teach them and to test them. It was to teach them to trust God. Reflecting on this 40 years later, this is what Moses preached to their kids in the book of Deuteronomy chapter eight. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And why did he do the manna thing? Verse three, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he may make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. By the way, that should sound familiar. Jesus quotes that to Satan when he's hungry in the wilderness, because Jesus learned the lesson that Israel never learned, that we don't live by bread alone, but we live by faith in God. And the manna was meant to teach them that very lesson. So God responds to their complaining with gracious provision. But next, we're going to see Moses and Aaron communicate this to the people. Verse 7, 6, sorry, verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Now, I want you to notice something very important in this text. It's so important to Moses. He repeats it several times. He wants to be very clear You might say you're complaining about us. Remember, it says they grumbled against Moses and Aaron, but you're not really complaining about us. You're complaining about God. He says, you're not really complaining about me. You're complaining about God. You are grumbling against God. And I want us to understand that point this morning. This is really important. We might think we're complaining about whatever it is we're complaining about, our spouse, our kids, our job, the government, uh, the weather. Whatever, we might think we're complaining about our circumstances, but at root, we're complaining against God. Why is that? Because who put those circumstances there? God's sovereign, y'all. Amen? Amen. God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass. So when we complain, we're saying to God, you got it wrong. We're saying to God, if I were in charge, I would have done things better than you. I know better. That's what we're saying when we complain. We're grumbling against God. Sinclair Ferguson wrote this about irritability, but but it applies here too. He says, irritability, by whatever name we call it, whether caused by other people or our circumstances, is at root irritation with God for the way he is providentially governing our lives. We blame our circumstances or other people or our background or even our genes. But none of these can function apart from God's sovereign will and purpose. So they're complaining against God. But notice what God does in his grace. He appears to them in the cloud. You remember the pillar of 
fire by day and cloud by night, or I might have that backwards. I can't remember anyway. They, they see the cloud. They see God's glory. And God tells them, you're going to have meat and you're going to have bread. Now, when they complained, what did they say they had in Egypt? Meat and bread. And God is giving them exactly what they asked for in gracious supply. Even though they're acting like spoiled brats, he's giving them exactly what they asked for. This reminds me of Romans 2.4, right? That God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. He's being kind. He's being gracious to these people, though they did not deserve it. And let's wrap up this story. Look at verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each, excuse me, one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered, gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Shocker. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Just a few thoughts here. I think we see two really cool things in this text. I think we see both God's incredible, precise providence at work, and we see God's miraculous, supernatural power at work. What do I mean? What's the difference in those two? There's a difference between God sovereignly and providentially ordering circumstances and situations to bring about a result through the use of natural means. And there's a certain uh, way that God works miraculously bypassing the use of natural means to work miraculously in the world. I actually think we see both in this text. So first of all, the quail. Quail actually migrated every year in the spring, which is when this would have been, from North Africa to Europe in large numbers. And there are reports of quail flying over the Sinai Peninsula. And by the time they got there, they were so exhausted that they would fly so low that humans could catch them. There's even a report I heard, uh, and one guy was like, quail came down in such large numbers that they sank a boat because many of them landed on a boat. So here's the deal. This is not in the Bible, okay? This is Pastor Nate speculation, disclaimer. Is it possible that God timed every event so precisely and so perfectly from the timing of the Exodus itself to how long they stayed in Elam, to the speed at which they were traveling, to where the quail would be in that place that very night. Sure, God could have just said, poof, and there's millions of quail there. Of course, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. But I think that's pretty cool. Pastor Nate speculation. However, that ain't the case with the manna, y'all. That's a miracle. Bread doesn't just fall out of the sky. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, it doesn't. Bread doesn't just fall out of the sky for 40 years and then stop. And by the way, this is just another fun thing. Uh, if you ever pick up a commentary on Exodus by someone who has more of a naturalistic worldview, it's a lot of fun. Uh, because a lot of times these scholars love to come up with these explanations for why it was like, oh, the blood in the water, it was this reddish sediment from the rain that got mixed in and they thought it was blood. And oh, the, uh, the manna is just this secretion from this plant that tasted sweet. Like, oh, shut up. Uh, it's, anyway, that has nothing to do with my sermon. I just think that's fun. Uh, but here's the deal. 
we see both God's providence bringing the quail to that place at that time perfectly and God's miracle that he is sending them bread to eat. Here's another little fun fact for you. Uh, verse 15, they looked at it and said to one another, what is it? In the Hebrew, that's manhu. It's where we get the word manna from. What does the word manna mean? It means, what is it? They looked at it and they went, what is that? And that's eventually what they called it because they didn't know what it was. I think that's fun. Notice a few things about the manna. First of all, verse 16, it was sufficient for their needs. He says, gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. These were not rations. Right? He says, eat until you're full. Gather as much as you can eat. Some gathered a little bit more, some gathered a little bit less, but it all evened out to an omer, which is about two quarts. So they all had what they need. Notice also it had a bad shelf life. It was only good for one day. It had to be eaten on the day that you gathered it or it grew worms and it stank. Uh, and then finally, it had to be gathered daily except for the Sabbath when you gathered a double portion and God miraculously preserved it for the next day. And that's our sermon for next week. We're going to talk about the Sabbath next week. So here's the deal. You note takers are probably so mad at me right now. Like Pastor Nate, you're like halfway through the sermon and you haven't even touched your note sheet yet. All right, we're getting there now. Because here's what we did. We walked through the story. Now I want to give you three truths that we learn from this passage for our lives today. Okay, I want to give you these three statements, three truths that we learn from this story for our lives today. First of all, complaining is sinful because it fails to respond to God's goodness with gratitude and trust. That's a loaded statement. Let me repeat it. We're going to unpack it. Complaining is sinful because it fails to respond to God's goodness with gratitude and trust. As we've already said, complaining was Israel's besetting sin. It was what they kept coming back to. And it's something, I don't know about you guys. I, I know Megan's here. I hope she doesn't say anything. Like, I am really good at it. Like no one had to teach me to be really good at it. And we know that we're all really good at it because no one had to teach my like three-year-old to be really good at it. Like we just come into this world really good at complaining about things. And we complain about any number of things. It's almost our natural reaction when things don't go our way. Even when we get what we want, eventually we'll get tired of it and we'll want something else. This is what happened to Israel, by the way. You want to fast forward a little bit in the story, Numbers chapter 11. How do they, they're excited about the manna right now in Exodus 16. How do they feel about the manna in Numbers 11? Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving and the people of Israel wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at, you poor things. God's raining down food from heaven for you in the middle of the desert. And they're thinking back in Egypt when we had all this stuff that we probably didn't even really have. I think there's several things that we learn about complaining in this text. First and foremost, complaining comes from a place of discontentment. We complain because we are not content with what God has given us. And here's the deal. This is an important thing for us to learn. Discontentment is not cured by getting what you want. In fact, it's made worse. It perpetuates the cycle. When I'm discontent and I get what I want, I'm not going to all of a sudden be content. I'm just going to want more. 
I get that new TV. I'm excited about it for a few months and then I want a bigger one. I get that new iPhone. Another one comes out a year later. I want that new one. I get that raise at work. I'm excited about it until I want more. We are never content until we learn how to be content with what God has given us. That's the only way to get off of that treadmill, to learn contentment with what the Lord has given us, to learn to trust that what God gives is sufficient for what we need. But next, I want you to see that complaining is about our desires, not our needs. In fact, one commentator put it, they complained out of their greed, not out of their need. I want you to notice something. Let's look forward. We're going to study this in two weeks. But if you have your Bibles open, peek over at Exodus 17, verse 3. Now, this is a story where they're going to complain again, but I want you to notice what they say when they complain. Exodus 17, 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? There's a word there I want you to notice. You know what that word is? Livestock. They had animals. Think about it. They're telling Moses, we're starving to death, Moses. We're about to die in Exodus 16 when they had livestock the whole time. Yes, their cupboards might have been getting a little bit bare, but they were not about to die. Which teaches me this. Their complaining was not because they were about to die. It was because they weren't getting what they want. And I would venture a guess that in your life, I know that's true because it's true in my life. I'm not complaining because I'm about to die or I don't have my basic needs being met. I complain because I'm not getting what I want. That's why we complain. Because it's about our desires, because we're not getting what we want. And in this way, and this is the key, complaining reveals a lack of gratitude. And I would even say, to put that positively, gratitude is the key to overcoming complaining. The way to overcome a heart that is bitter and complains is to learn to be grateful. Because if they had just remembered what God had done for them, that gratitude would have led to trust. That gratitude would have led to faith. And this is what I'd suggest to you. If you struggle with this in your own life with complaining, we need to learn how to reframe the things that we're tempted to complain about instead as opportunities for gratitude. Think of it this way. Instead of complaining about your spouse, what if instead you said, Lord, Thank you for blessing me with a spouse. Thank you for giving me this person to live my life with. Instead of complaining about your kids because they're being annoying or whatever, Lord, thank you that you have given me children and you've given me the privilege of getting to shepherd them and lead them and let them grow to know you. Instead of complaining about your job, Lord, thank you that you've given me an opportunity to work hard for your glory and an opportunity to work hard to provide for my family and glorify you. Here's the biggest one of all. Are you ready? What about our trials? What about the difficult things in life? What about the desert seasons in life? What if instead of complaining in our trials, we said, Lord, thank you for an opportunity to refine my faith. Thank you for an opportunity for me to share in Christ's sufferings and to reflect him to the people around me. What if we were grateful? That is the key to overcoming complaint. Last thought here. Complaining compromises our witness to a watching world. There's a verse my mom used to quote all the time growing up when we would fight. Uh, Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In other words, Paul is saying, don't complain because the world's watching and we're supposed to be different than the rest of the world. 
So instead of responding to the trials in our life with complaining, we should learn to be content with what God gives, learn to be grateful for his blessings, and learn to trust him for his provision, which leads us to the second truth that we learned this morning. We should trust that God will meet our needs while working hard for his glory. We should trust that God will meet our needs while working hard for his glory. This is a story fundamentally about the provision of God, about how God provided for this people. Here's a few things that we learn about God's provision. First of all, God gave them what they needed for today. God's provision was only good for one day. If you try to hoard it till tomorrow, it went bad. This is the same way that Jesus teaches us to pray. You remember, teach, or give us this day our daily bread. How often do we get God's mercy, Lamentation says. His mercies are new every morning. God wants us to come to him every day, every morning for fresh mercy and fresh help in our lives because he never wants us to get to a place where we feel like we don't need him. He never wants us to become self-sufficient or self-reliant. We don't get to hoard God's mercy and then go back to that stockpile whenever we need some. We have to go directly to God to keep us dependent on him. You know, I think probably my favorite Christmas gift that me and Megan got this year, uh, my mom got us a Costco membership. We've never had one before. Uh, but let me tell you guys, it's been a game changer. It's awesome. Like, we love that place. I get so hyped about going there. We love it. We stock up on stuff. We hoard stuff. And it, it's really cool. Uh, it's probably the membership that I'm most excited about just under my membership at Coastal, of course. Um, but we love Costco. We're really excited about it. But here's the deal. God's grace is not like Costco, where you can go and get a month's supply of it and then go back to it time and time again. God wants us to come to him every single day. This is why Jesus teaches us, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. You come to me. You trust me today. That's your job. Tomorrow is my job. Today, you trust me. This is the way that Ed Welch put it. You can turn your attention to the present because God remembers your past it is his job to worry about your future and he will give you the power you need for today. Church, we serve the God of today. So learn to trust him today. But next, God's provision was what they needed. God's provision was what they needed. The manna was sufficient to meet their needs at that time. Now, it might not have been what they always wanted, but it was the only option. You're in the desert. You don't like manna, sorry. It's not like you can go to a restaurant down the street and get something else. It's not like our, our youngest, Leah, she's almost two. Uh, we'll make dinner at night, but half the time we end up making her a hot dog because she inherited her mother's pickiness. Um, but listen, it's not that way with God. The manna was exactly what they needed. And in the same way, church, God knows what we need. It might not always be what we want, what he gives us in our lives, but he knows what we need. And we need to learn to trust that what he gives is best. There's an old hymn that says, what air my God ordains is right. You need to learn to say that no matter what we're facing. If God ordained it, then it's right. Then it's good. Then this is for my good and his glory. Finally, and this is the other side of the tension. Remember our statement. We should trust that God will meet our needs while working hard for his glory. God's provision is never an excuse for laziness or entitlement in our lives. I want you to notice, even in this story, the story about the provision of God, they had to go out six days a week to gather their food. And also notice this, what happened if they waited too long? When the sun got hot, it melted. In other words, 
if you didn't get up early enough, you didn't set your alarm and you didn't get out there and get the man up before it got hot. Sorry. Guess you're going hungry today. You had to work hard to get your food. And this is a tension that we need to understand in our lives. Yes, we must trust God to meet our needs, but we also must work hard. This is the other side of the tension. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, this is what Paul says. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. Sounds harsh, Paul. Well, it's biblical, right? God created man in the first place, even before sin, to work, to work the garden, to work hard for his glory. Yes, we need rest. We're going to talk about that next week. But still, this is the tension. We work hard while trusting that all, even the results of our work comes from God, that the provision comes from God. And to illustrate this idea of the provision of God, I love the story of George Mueller. And you guys familiar with George Mueller, his incredible story. So he was a pastor in England in the 1800s, and he was best known for his ministry to orphans. So over the course of his life, he founded five orphanages and cared for over 10,000 orphans. And here's where the story gets incredible. In the last 68 years of his ministry, he never took a salary. He never asked anyone directly for money, either for himself or for the orphans. He never took out a loan and he never went into debt. And in today's currency, he literally prayed in millions of dollars. There's even a story in his biography of a time when he, excuse me, met with a very wealthy lady and talked to her about the orphanages, and he never asked her for money. And as soon as she left, he prayed and asked that God would soften her heart and incline her to give. Because he wanted to show that he could trust God to take care of him and to take care of these children. And this is what he wrote about it. This is amazing. He said, the gifts had been given to me without one single individual having been asked by me for anything. The reason why I have refrained altogether from soliciting anyone for help is that the hand of God evidently might be seen in the matter and that thus my fellow believers might be encouraged more and more to trust in him and that those also who know not the Lord may have a fresh proof that indeed it is not a vain thing to pray to God. So here's the bottom line for us this morning. Are you trusting that God will meet your needs while working hard for his glory? Or are you worried? Are you stressed? Are you complaining? Do you live with a self-reliant perspective that it's all up to you? Because if so, Christians, I have a newsflash for us this morning. God did not send his only begotten son to die on a cross for you just to forget about you now. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God already did the hard thing, he already did the ultimate thing necessary to secure our salvation, he won't fail to bring us to the point of ultimate salvation. He already paid the down payment. God's going to give us what we need. This is the promise from his word, Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need, every need, not every want, not every desire, but every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And how do we define need? Because there's probably some people in this room who've gone hungry before. You haven't been able to pay the rent before. And you're like, well, how do you mean that God provides every need? Here's what I mean. God will always give you everything that is necessary to glorify him in any given situation, always. God will always give you what you need to bring him glory in any situation because that's why we exist, to glorify him. 
And I saved the best for last. You ready? Last point's the most important one. The ultimate provision that we need is Jesus Christ, the bread of life. This story from Exodus 16 is absolutely incredible, both for its function within the book of Exodus, for the lessons that it teaches us for our lives today. But that's not the only thing this passage serves to do. I believe that this passage points us forward to the gospel. It reminds us of Jesus Christ. It points us forward to Jesus and what he came to accomplish. And so you can either follow along the screens or turn with me to John chapter six, to this incredible account where Jesus is having this conversation with the Jews. And so earlier in John six, Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? He turns the five loaves and the two fish and he gives them bread. Well, the next day they're like, well, that was a pretty good deal. So they come back to Jesus and they want more bread. And Jesus calls them out. He says, the only reason you guys are healed here is because you think of me as a meal ticket. And so they have this conversation starting at verse 30. We'll start there. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? You guys are still looking for manna. You're still looking for physical bread that will fill your bellies and then you'll need more tomorrow. But I am the true bread of life, the bread that gives eternal life. And whoever feasts on me will be eternally satisfied. He's saying the manna in the wilderness, the bread from heaven was intended to point forward to me, to show you about me, the one who came from heaven to give you eternal life. And how did they respond? How did the Jews of Jesus's day respond? Verse 41. So the Jews, what? They grumbled. They responded just like their fathers. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The manna was a lesson to point forward to Jesus, that he is the bread of life. And whoever feasts on Christ, whoever receives Christ into their life will never die. They will be eternally satisfied. That's the gospel. It's the good news of the gospel. And so even in Exodus 16, the gospel is being set up by God being foreshadowed to show us that a savior is coming. The true bread is coming. 
So with that in mind, I want to invite the worship team to come back and I want to leave us with a couple of final thoughts this morning. You know, I, I love the irony. I told Megan this in the car yesterday. I love the irony of studying this story on this Sunday. Um, I love that we're talking about starving people in the desert and their God's miraculous provision of food on Super Bowl Sunday. Do you guys realize that this is the day of the year? It's second only to Thanksgiving in terms of food consumption. I read an article yesterday. The average American household purchases about 6,000 calories per person worth of snacks. So I don't, I don't think we're going to be like crying out to God for bread to come down from heaven tonight because uh, we're starving to death. But here's the deal. God's rich blessings in our lives should first of all lead us to more gratitude for how kind he's been to us, for how he provides for us every single day. But it should also point us to Christ that at the end of the day, Jesus is the provision of God, the bread that came from heaven for our salvation. So two final appeals this morning. First, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Christ, there might be many things in this world that you think that you need, right? We talk about God meeting our needs and you, you need food and water, you need shelter. And yes, you need all of those things, but do you realize what your greatest need is? Your greatest need is to have your sins forgiven because all of us in this world, we are guilty before a holy God. We are sinners. And if we do not come to Christ and have our sins forgiven, we will be lost eternally. So the gospel is the good news that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, the true bread from heaven to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins, to be risen from the dead three days later so that when we receive him into our life, we will have eternal life. That's the gospel. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would invite you, I'd implore you, be reconciled to God. Do business with God this morning. Receive Christ into your life. Cry out to God for forgiveness. And if you want to talk with someone and pray with someone about that. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come up now. They'd love to pray with you and talk with you after the service. Or even if you just have a prayer need or a burden or something in your heart, please come and be ministered to by our prayer team this morning. For my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, let me leave you with this thought. I don't know where you are in your life. Maybe you're in the refreshing springs of Elam right now and you're by the, the oasis and everything is great. That's awesome. It probably won't last that long. For the rest of us, if you're, in a, if you're in the desert, if you're struggling right now, man, let me encourage you. How are you going to respond to those trials? Are you going to respond with gratitude for God's blessings, for faith in his promises? Or are we going to complain? Are we going to worry? Are we going to doubt? Let me encourage you. Remember what God has done for you in the past. Remember his deliverance. And let that remembrance lead to gratitude and trust for the future. Remember his grace and let that lead you to a greater trust and a greater hope in the future. Let's close with a word of prayer. Oh Lord, we love you. Lord, all of our lives in every season, you are God. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. You have provided us so much more than we could ever ask or deserve, Lord, both in our own lives temporally, but also eternally, Lord. You give us everything that we need. We thank you, Lord. We ask that you would deepen our faith. Lord, forgive us for when we worry. Forgive us for when we complain. But Lord, instead, deepen our faith. Deepen our gratitude in you. Lord, we love you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.